Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. One, two, three, four, five. Let me just make sure it's yeah, it's doing something. It's recording. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. I'm Josh Gerstein, and I'm a senior legal affairs reporter for Politico. Last week, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. Today, Josh Gerstein breaks down what we know about the shortlist and why the question of who is not all you should be paying attention to, as the Supreme Court prepares to hear two high-profile controversial cases on abortion and affirmative action. On the campaign trail, President Biden pledged to nominate a Black woman to fulfill a Supreme Court seat. Who is on this shortlist right now? Well, there's a short shortlist and a slightly uh, longer shortlist. The most frequently discussed possibilities for the open slot as a result of Breyer's uh, retirement are three judges. One is a judge on the D.C. Circuit, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's only been on the D.C. Circuit for about seven months Mm. and was nominated to that position by uh, President Biden. She's President Biden's only nominee on the D.C. Circuit, who was elevated from the uh, district court in Washington. Mm-hmm. The a couple of other judges on the short, short list are California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, who has been mentioned for some time and had a senior position at the Justice Department during the uh, Obama administration. And the third name that's been sort of widely circulated is Michelle Childs, who is a district court judge in South Carolina. And a child is interesting because not only is she supported by some very prominent members of Congress, she has the distinction of being the only person whose name has been publicly confirmed by the White House as being on any of the shortlists. And that's because she was supposed to be up for a circuit confirmation hearing this week. And they decided, along with the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Dick Durbin, to take her off that hearing because it would have been awkward and, <laughs> you know, all the focus would have been on the Supreme Court nominee. So those are the three. There there are maybe six to seven other names that have been circulated and kind of background confirmed by people close to the process. But th- those are the ones that are being most, most widely uh, discussed. And this is not a nomination that seems like it will drastically change the court ideologically because Stephen Breyer fell into the liberal side of the court. So the makeup will stay 6-3. But how much of a difference is there ideologically or philosophically between these potential candidates? Are there certain rulings or opinions that you can point to that might show how different candidates would bring a sort of different flavor to the Supreme Court? I think it's really hard to draw clear ideological lines uh, between and among the people on the shortlist. And the reason for that is, you know, some of these uh, people have been on the bench for not that long. So they don't have a a long set of decisions. They may not be uh, decisions that lend themselves to drawing ideological conclusions, depending on what types of cases they've got. In the sort of broader shortlist, you do have people like uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's been one of the leading spokespersons and lawyers within the civil rights community for the last couple of decades. Um, she 
recently announced she was going to step down as head of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. So she's very well known as an advocate. Um, Most of these other people are circuit court judges who are very widely respected. But I don't think there's probably a whole lot of ideological light uh, between the candidates. I have a feeling that's not the way the decision is going to be made. Mm, How is the decision going to be made? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, the people that are on the short, short list, uh, Biden's going to want to meet with them. Some of them he has already met with because they came up, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure he met Kentanji Brown Jackson uh, during the D.C. Circuit nomination uh, decision. And he may have met some of these other members, obviously some of the advocates he would have met with in that capacity. Uh, You know, I think it's going to be the president's sense of uh, who will be the most effective justice. Uh, Sometimes it's a matter of personal chemistry with the president, a sense of whether this is a person who could potentially build consensus on the court, although whether that's a real viable goal, given the 6-3 split between conservatives and liberals is less clear. But Mm. there's no question that Breyer was somebody on the court who was uh, always looking for a middle ground or a way to build a consensus, sometimes to make a more narrow decision, if that's you could way you could get people together. Uh, mm-hmm. Chief Justice John Roberts is definitely in that mold as well. And so between Roberts and Breyer, even on a 6-3 court, you're sort of in the range to potentially produce a majority that could govern the court. And so uh, I think that's something Biden will be uh, looking for as well uh, on the pick for justice. Democrats don't need Republicans to pass through the nominee if they all stick together. But do you think that there's likely to be Republican support? I mean, I think he's likely to pick up uh, a couple, at least a few Republican votes. We obviously live in a very polarized time, but some of these nominees already got Republican votes when they were confirmed to the circuit courts. Mm -hmm. So it would only sort of be logical for for senators to vote the same way if they thought they were qualified. It doesn't mean senators always do that. So yeah, I think that there'll be some degree of support, but it's obviously becoming harder and harder for senators to cast votes for nominees that are put up by a president of the opposite party. I mean, it was once very common and you you had many justices that were confirmed by votes of 80 or 90 to something. And now it seems like 53 or something like that is a much more common tally for someone to get on the court with. Yeah. I thought it was interesting on Sunday, Senator Lindsey Graham said that he supported President Biden's promise to nominate a black woman and said it was time the court looked more like America. Put me in the camp of making sure the court and other institutions look like America. And referenced President Reagan pledging to nominate a woman and said this is, you know, in the same mold. And President Reagan said running for office that he wanted to put the first female Mm -hmm. on the court. Whether you like it or not, Joe Biden said, I'm going to pick an African-American woman to serve on the Supreme Court. I believe there are plenty of qualified African-American women, conservative and liberal. So he's already very publicly signaling a level of support. Right. Well, I think he had he is a fan of Michelle Childs, who is on the district court in South Carolina. She has wide support in our state. She's considered to be a fair-minded, highly uh, gifted uh, jurist. Uh, She's one of the most decent people I've ever met. And is one of the people on the reputed to be on the short list. Um, You know, it's an interesting comment from Graham. It's kind of a a counterpoint to uh, 
uh, Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, who had made sort of the opposite comments and had said, you know, that basically was wrong for Biden to um, say that he was going to nominate a black woman to the court because that disqualifies, you know, 93 percent uh, of the country. Uh, and the White House kind of came out very aggressively and uh, kind of slapped back at Wicker, uh, pointing out that after uh, Amy Coney Barrett was nominated by uh, President Trump in 2020, Wicker said she was sort of an inspiration uh, to women. Uh, you know, there is this debate about whether it was smart for Biden to, to basically say he was going to set aside his nomination or his next nomination for a black woman. I think the problem there is that given what Reagan did and even Trump at one point said, oh, I'm going to nominate a woman, Republicans didn't speak up in outrage over that, at least most Republican lawmakers. And it seems hard to find people that have taken an entirely principled stance against setting any kind of demographic criteria for who's going to be on the court. Yeah. I've heard some reporting that in terms of timeline, the process that Majority Leader Schumer is looking to follow is the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation timeline of about five weeks, a month and a half, rather than the longer two to three month process that it's often historically been. Why would they be looking to have a more accelerated process here? I think one reason is um, there is some degree of concern that we're in a 50-50 Senate. You know, it's the slenderest of possible margins, assuming Republicans decided not to vote for whoever uh, President Biden nominated. Uh, that would mean that uh, Vice President Harris would have to come in and break a tie. And it also means that if any member of the Senate, let's say, unfortunately were to die or even short of that, became ill to the point where they couldn't vote, uh, if that senator was on the Democratic side, then uh, that would mean that they couldn't move the nominee through without some Republican votes, which could be a big problem. So I think there's a general sense of urgency. I, we know that there are a number of members of the Senate who are in their 80s, and it seems to me somewhat logical to try to move forward with it quickly. I don't think that this, the way I read uh, Justice Breyer's resignation letter, I don't think it means that this justice would be sworn into the court before the court's final decisions come out at the end of June and the beginning of July. So it doesn't really matter for the court uh, whether it's any time from now through the first weekend in October or the first Monday in October, but it could matter in terms of Democrats being able to muster the, the votes that they need to get this nominee over the finish line. You know more about the Supreme Court than almost anyone I know, I think. What are some of the lingering questions that you've got that you're most curious to see play out? Or what are you going to be looking at in the coming weeks? Well, look, I, I think, honestly, I find it interesting that there's going to be so much focus on this nomination process, uh, as opposed to what's actually going on at the Supreme Court. Maybe mm. it's media fascination. I understand that it does mean the selection of a person that will likely sit on the court for two or three decades, which is a pretty momentous decision in this sort of Twitter uh, instantaneous era that we're living in at, at the moment. So some notion that someone would be on the court for 30 years is a big deal, and it, it matters who that person is, even if you're replacing a liberal with a liberal. Uh, that said, it is a 6-3 court, meaning there's twice as many 
Republican appointees on the court, twice as many conservatives as liberals. So no matter where uh, Biden comes out on the ideological spectrum with his pick, uh, the conservatives are, you know, firmly in control there. And you have a couple of just massively huge decisions uh, that we're expecting this term. One is on abortion, where we could see the biggest rollback in abortion rights in half a century since the Roe v. Wade decision. And the other is a, a set of two cases that the court just agreed to take about a week ago on affirmative action in education. And that's been about a 30-year saga, 40-year saga in front of the court as to what the rules should be around the use of race in the college admissions process. And it seems very likely that this Supreme Court uh, may say that you can't use race in the college admissions process at all anymore. And at this point, that would be almost a revolutionary kind of impact on higher education. And I would have to say, in all candor, more significant the way the Supreme Court comes out on that issue, uh, which will happen by the end of June or early July, than which particular nominee Biden decides uh, is going to fill Justice Breyer's seat. Josh Gerstein, thank you so much for talking with me. No, happy to do it anytime. Also today, after Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and other musicians pulled their music from Spotify over the spread of COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, particularly on the podcast The Joe Rogan Experience, the music streaming service said that it will add content advisories before podcasts discussing the virus. And North Korea on Sunday fired what appeared to be the most powerful missile it has tested since President Joe Biden took office. Sunday's test was North Korea's seventh round of launches this month. The unusually fast pace of tests indicates its intent to pressure the Biden administration over long-stalled nuclear negotiations. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.